Hey Isaac, welcome on board. Here, we invite you to listen to various industry leaders. Announce the name millennials. To share their stories. Hop on and you shall listen, learn and lead. And welcome to the Walkie Talkie Podcast. I'm Chloe. And I'm Yunjing. We are local virtual volunteers from Isaac in Sunway, and we'll be hosting the podcast for this episode. In this episode, we are going to talk about education-related issues faced by refugees. And joining us here today is none other than Miss Tio Minchia from the other school. We'll be discussing two main topics here, which are the education problems faced by refugee children and the situation of a refugee learning centre. Before we start, let's have our guest introduce herself. Hi everyone, I'm Mincha, currently running the other school. We started the other school about four years ago and right now we have been hiring teachers to teach in the refugee learning centre. And we also run workshops for the public. So the fees that we have collected from these public workshops will be used to hire teachers for the kids in the learning centre and that's how we have been sustaining ourselves and the centre as well. Wow, thank you for the wonderful introduction. That's a really great introduction and hope to learn more about the other school uh, during the podcast. So without further ado, let's start off with our first topic. So actually throughout my own volunteering experience with refugee children, I seem to have noticed that most of the students in learning centres are actually boys. And my question is, do the refugee children actually face gender discrimination in terms of receiving education? Are there any specific factors that impact this gender inequality? Right. I'm probably unsure, you know, exactly which centre that you went to. But to be honest, the mm. one that we have been in the centre, in fact, I would say the ratio is actually quite 50-50. So, however, I do notice that when it comes to more teenage age, actually there are a lot of boys that have to drop out to work because Ooh. boys, they, you know, they are a bit more independent or in their family's member perspective, they can... Yeah. It's, it's safer for them to go out. However, with girls in their perspective, they would tend to have more safety issues if let's say they go out alone. So in such case, actually teenage boys will usually drop out earlier as compared to teenage girls. However, I would say that in terms of the community's perspective, um, I don't think there is a distinction in boys or girls who should get more education. I would say they plays quite equal importance for boys and girls for now or at least from the committee that I am aware of but yes like I mentioned working side and there is actually an issue of child marriage among the Rohingya communities and in such case um, that will mainly affect girls so Mm. however from what I understand this is not something where all of the committees will practice really down to their personal opinion and also what kind of situation that actually push them into that as well. I wouldn't say this represents the entire Rohingya community. That's definitely not something that I want to convey. But there is in reality there are cases that have happened before and yeah that is what's happening when it comes to gender. Mm, I see. So I can say that my experience is more of a local issue rather than a more national issue for refugees, right? Yeah, but I suppose it also depends 
how many centers have you been to and also yeah. if there is only this one center and perhaps um, if you have managed to speak more to let's say like a community leader mm. you may be able to know that if this is more like by chance or this is actually there is a, a discrimination when it comes to gender Mm, I see. Thank you for the answers. We really love how you crafted your answers and how you explain uh, more than just education. All right, let's go to our next question. So next, uh, refugees have actually come a long way from their home country and they have witnessed like many traumatic events such as like war or like they are living in constant fear when they are on the run. So this normally causes them to be more prone to like mental health issues such as depression or PTSD. So do you think that it causes children to have a harder time receiving education with these mental barriers? If yes, so how do we get past this barrier? Right. I definitely do agree on this point. And what is so dangerous about this is actually, yes, we all know that this mental health issue is something that really not just applicable to refugees. Mm. Really, anyone would have such situation. However, I think what makes it difficult is when it comes to language barrier, number one, where a lot Mm. of kids, even if they have or face certain issues, they wouldn't be able to speak it out, they wouldn't be able to convey it, and they wouldn't be able to explain to anyone that they are facing such issue. The second reason would be more on how affordable the healthcare is. So what happened to refugees in Malaysia is they are not signatory of UN Convention. So in such case, there are three main areas that usually they are having less advantage and mm. they and, and which is supposed to be our basic rights, right? So firstly is work opportunity. So they are not allowed to work on a full-time basis. Second is coming to education, which you guys have already mentioned. And third is actually healthcare. So like us, you know, we Malaysians, we go to a... Uh, government hospital, we can actually, we probably only need to pay like, you know, less than five ringgit if not mistaken, right? Especially yeah. if, it's like a, if it's like a very, uh, if, there, if it's not something that's very serious. However, even with a UNHCR card, they only entitled to 50% of a uh, foreigner mm. rate. So in such case, the fees is actually still pretty high. So in order for them to save money, and a lot of time, mental health, as long as it doesn't go to them, as long as it doesn't go to a situation where it affects their life, mm. where it's like a life or death situation, they will choose to, you know, put it aside. Because yeah. in reality, they cannot afford that. When they have more money, they just want to make sure that at least the household income is enough to cover their rental, their daily expenses, or then come to education. And lastly, really, it only comes to like wellness and, and mental health like this. So mm. these are the two main reasons that usually, even though they may be aware that you know, something is wrong and they may be aware that I need help, but that stopped them from approaching someone or asking for help. However, yeah. I think at the moment, um, I do know that there are some NGOs um, like MSRI um, or Mercy, they actually are offering very affordable um, mental health care for the community as well. So then um, it is more of removing the barrier of them thinking that oh, um, this is a taboo to talk about and this is something that yeah. we, we shouldn't ask for help. So that, that comes back more on education again to let the mm. community know that it is okay. Um, it is okay to ask help and especially coming from a background where they have went through so much and yeah. a lot of times um, they are constantly, you know, 
thinking about okay what hap- what's going to happen to my tomorrow um where do i get my food where do i get a place to stay so that will become their main concerns rather than how do i feel today and do i feel good yeah. today and do i feel hopeful so so then it's slowly guiding them towards um realizing that it is okay to ask help and um there is help currently available and yeah i think i think that's that's pretty important at the moment i do know that there are some ngos like msri or mercy they actually are offering very affordable mental health care for the community as well so then it is more of removing the barrier of them thinking that oh this is a taboo to talk about and this is something that yeah. we, we shouldn't ask for help so that that comes back more on education again to let the community mm. know that it's okay to ask help and especially coming from a background where they have went through so much and yeah. a lot of times they are constantly you know thinking about okay what's going to happen to my tomorrow um where do i get my food where do i get a place to stay so that will become their main concerns rather than how do i feel today and do i feel good yeah. today and do i feel hopeful so so then it's slowly guiding them towards realizing that it is okay to ask help and there is help currently available and yeah i think i think that's that's pretty important yeah yeah i do agree with that that they don't really put mental health as their first priority and uh whether or not they realize that it's actually quite important to seek help and yeah it's really nice to know that there are NGOs and there are organizations that provide help to them and provide these resources for them. And I like how you mentioned about language barrier because my next question is about education systems and cultures that are between countries and even states. They vary. They are very different. So refugees have to actually adapt to a whole new set of language and culture and education when coming into Malaysia. Like what you have mentioned, they, are, they might not know how to communicate or they might not know to uh, express their needs so in your experience can these refugees actually adapt well maybe after a year or two will this inability to adapt cost them their education right I think the good thing about kids or children in general is whether or not they are refugees, their ability to adapt is actually very high and they are more flexible as we think and they are way more resilient than we imagine Mm. so this is what's good about children or like kids and coming back a bit on you know cultural barrier or even a language barrier in fact we do have a lot of kids in our school they themselves pick up Malay even though Malay is not a subject in the school so you wow. know kids what they do every time they I mean not during the pandemic itself but before the pandemic playing around is actually something that kids at every age or like at whoever their background is does, right? So then they play with the neighbor. Yeah. Slowly, they pick up um, local culture, local language. They know the food. They know how do you address people? How do you buy some stuff um, from the convenience store? So all of these things actually become their childhood while they're mm. in Malaysia. And a lot of, a uh, huge part of it is because once refugee children, if they're not born in Malaysia, if they only come at, seems like, say, five, six years old, they yeah. most likely will spend up to like, like, if they're lucky, less than five years. Mm. But if not, the higher majority, about like 90%, is actually close to 10 years or even longer. Wow. So, yeah, so that has put them in a situation where they will usually learn and they absorb really well, I would say. 
as as compared to adults sometimes, which we should understand, you know, um, kids, they process things yeah. faster and it's at the age where they just take Correct. on whatever that is around them and the environment around them. So then they actually will be able to adapt. But of course, there are also children where we don't see what has happened to them. They really have went through quite a major trauma. And in this case, um, I wouldn't deny that they are. Um, however, I would think a big majority of them actually do adapt well and adapt much more than me. When I say <laughs> that, what I mean by that is I actually don't speak good Malay. So I feel like a few of them actually speak Malay better than me. So yeah. <laughs> I see. Wow. That's, that's really nice to know that they are actually more resilient than than what we think they are and yeah as you mentioned I think the the core message here is that refugees are human beings as well they are also children as well and no matter what we can do they can do as well just maybe they might need more resources or they might need more help but they can definitely achieve things as well yeah, that's so much to unpack and thank you once again for all your answers. So I will now pass the time to Yunjing for the second topic. All right. Thank you for the pass, Chloe. And thank you so much, Ms. Mincha, for your valuable insights into the education problems and other problems such as healthcare issues that are faced by these refugees. It really was an eye-opening experience to realize and better understand some of these problems that are regularly faced by these refugees that may simply just go over the head of other non-refugees. But without further delay, let us move on to the second topic of the day. This time, we would like to inquire more regarding the situation in a refugee learning centre. So first of all, I would like to ask, what is it like being in a refugee learning centre? Whether it's working as a teacher and teaching the children, or as a child learning in the centre itself. And would you reckon that the experience is any different from working or studying in a traditional school setting? Okay, that's a good question, actually. So I, I think a lot of people would imagine that refugees in Malaysia stay in a refugee camp because that's what we see, right, on the news and even from uh, UNHCR general publications. However, the thing about a lot of um, Southeast Asian countries is there's no refugee camp. So what, and, and in Malaysia, what happened to the refugees is they actually have to rent their own house, figure out their own rental, and then uh, just like any one of us, they need to look for a place, rent the place, and then they stay. And in terms of refugee learning center, it actually may happen, you know, even just around you without you noticing it, because they would most likely rent a shop lot that is low cost, and then they just set it up. So it's so like a tuition center. And they will try to gather some whiteboards, table and chair, not super fancy, but at least enough to cater the kids to learn. So that's more of the physical, you know, hardware. So when it comes to like software in terms of the structure, the system and what kind of curriculum and the question that you ask, which is how is it like? So basically when it comes to software, there is no set curriculum for all refugee learning centers. So in my perspective, even the traditional learning system wouldn't suit the refugees in the refugee learning center. So why is that so? It's because the basic ed- that received is very different. 
a lot of them there could be many lost years that you don't get to learn so what I mean by that is it could be they have to travel like the entire year spent on traveling so then imagine one whole year lost while they are while the parents are still trying to figure out oh, where should we stay um, okay they maybe they go from places to places then only finally they settle down in Kuala Lumpur so then in this case, imagine for the past one year, they haven't been to any school. So let's say they are at six years old. And, and then if we immediately push them into a primary class, although they are already seven this year, it will not work because they don't have the same kindergarten knowledge that we, we, we general Malaysians go to. And, and at the same time, the parents also wouldn't be able to have time to you know teach them all the basic because in reality, they are escaping from a country that put them in a very dangerous situation. So all they think about is, okay, how do we look for a safe place? And with all of those, this is with a very, I would say, optimistic uh, assumption where there's only one year that that in such a situation. However, in reality, there could be many years. They could look more from places to places without having the privilege of staying at one place. So then they wouldn't consider about going to a school. So in this case, when it comes to age, we actually do have students that they are 15 years old, but they just they have just completed basic ABC. Because like I say, um, those are the situations that I have already described, which they may not be able to have that basic education. And when it comes to teachers, a lot of time they have to hire community teacher so uh, even though they hire they actually don't pay a lot so it's more of helping the teacher to earn a little bit cover their daily expenses but the reason that they don't pay a lot is not because they they think that it is easy to be a teacher it's the opposite because it's very hard for them to raise funds because mm-hmm. a refugee from another country wherever it is be Myanmar or Syria Afghanistan wherever it is they don't have the local connection right so they also most likely are not good in English they only know their local language so in this case um, social media may not be feasible uh, you know a lot of us at this time we do a lot of fundraising however we we put up a social media account and and it seems like it's the easiest way right but however for the community they wouldn't be able to do that and without a local connection it's very hard for them to raise funds without funds they will usually take some school fees from the kids However, that still is not sufficient to pay a good money to the teachers. Most likely, there will only be enough to cover the rental, the utilities, and some groceries, if let's say the school need grocery, and some stationaries, right? So, and that's about it. And hence, teachers are very underpaid. And usually, a principal of a center is also a caretaker, a teacher, a headmaster, mm. or even a cleaner. So he, he plays uh, a lot of role in this learning center. And, and that's how a learning center structure can look like. And at the same time, because they don't have the background of education, they are not sure how to run a learning center. But at the same time, they know that it is very important for the kids to learn. Even if it's just basic. And without the basic, it will even put them way more behind. Because imagine this 15-year-old girl didn't come to this learning center that we're in at 15 years old she doesn't know like any english word and imagine later on it could really be very detrimental especially for someone at this age they're supposed to learn so this is what is happening at the refugee learning center when it comes to network i believe when it comes to local school usually there is like a centralized system or centralized Mm -hmm. network to 
to tell everyone that okay, this is how the syllabus is like. This is how the system mm. is like. And we will cover the place, we will cover teachers, um, we cover all the facilities. However, with all the refugee learning center, UNHCR is not doing that. I don't really say that it is their responsibility because in reality, there are just so many things to take care about, right? There's only mm-hmm. like one UNHCR in Malaysia and that's like 180,000 registered refugees. So there's mm-hmm. a lot more like urgent cases and life or death situation that they need to handle um, rather than education. And in this case, refugees have to just fend for themselves and figure out their own ways. And of course, there are some, some of them are, I would say, pretty creative. They try to do small businesses and they sell it to the local because, like I say, some of them know how to speak Malay. So they try to sell it to the local. It could be like selling snacks, could be like selling food. Um, and then that's how they have a bit of turnover, you know, to run the center. But this is not everyone. Um, not everyone is entrepreneurial. And in fact, out of like 125 learning centers in Malaysia, I would say that's about less than 10 that actually has very stable network and very stable income to support them to keep running. And the pandemic situation has definitely made these centers in a situation where they don't know how long more they can go. If let's say they're unable to pay rental, let's say they're unable to pay all the utilities because the parents are not working. So if the parents are not working, parents can't pay. And if parents mm. can't pay, then they can't run the center. So it becomes like mm. a cycle uh, where it's just very hard to sustain. And yep, that's what's happening in, in the learning centers or in, in different aspects, including like funding or the structure or both the hardware and the software. Yeah. Mm, I see. That's quite a lot to digest, actually. Because before you talk all about this, I once had an encounter with a refugee child and she was like telling me she struggled a lot with like basic algebra, even though she was like quite old, right? So yeah. I was like, why, why would she struggle with such a thing? But then after all of this, consider like how they struggle to find a safe place, how they are trying to make meet end and everything and how the principals have so many responsibilities to take care of. It all starts to fit in together now. But all right, the, this brings me to my second question, which is, nowadays, society is becoming more and more keen on the qualifications one possesses rather than their actual capabilities. So I would like to ask, do these refugees obtain any sorts of qualifications for completing their education in such learning centers? And are these qualifications recognized either locally or nationally? Right. So these learning centers essentially, I would say, are not capable um, to provide mm-hmm. such qualifications. So there are many reasons to it. So one is even as simple as very basic, just sustaining the center itself in order to take more students. Um, that is already pretty challenging. So when it comes to um, qualifications, especially international qualifications or certification like this, usually you will need to hire a teacher who is qualified enough to teach that, right? Mm, so right. I'm sure even if you go to a university, if, if, you're, if you don't really know what your teacher has done or like what, what kind of qualification, um, you would kind of doubt, okay, is this the right uni that I want to go into, right? So even, <laughs> even us students, we care about who is teaching us so much. But in their mm. cases, uh, really there isn't much choice um, and, and they can only focus on the basic. So, however, I am aware that there are certain learning centers, especially the ones in KL, 
not so much on the other state, but urban in KL, they do provide IGCSE class. So they will really hire teacher who is IGCSE certified to teach in these learning centers, uh, which that definitely is expenses. They need to be able to cater to that. And hence, those are usually local, run by the locals. And um, when they have such teachers, and of course, they can always uh, provide the classes. And classes are actually only the very first step because then you will need to also consider every exam. So this international exam, you will need fees to go for the exam. Mm. We're not mm. talking about school fees. We're talking about exam fees. fees so yeah. if you took like A-levels, if you took like yeah different certs in before, I'm sure you know you need to pay a certain amount. And that amount is paid mm. to these exam bodies. It's not to the learning center. So in mm. that case, a lot of learning center also need to think about how can I help the kids to get enough money to sign up the paper mm. and imagine I think you know like let's say uh, let's say if you take five papers and you fail like one paper and then you retake right mm. so in this case all of these things technically they can be done so it's not considered illegal you know getting teachers to teach going for a paper and to register for the exam and to eventually get the paper they are not doable right? Mm. However, it's about the cost that come with it and who is going to bear the cost itself. So in this case, then a lot of refugee teens, like I mentioned pretty early on when they're at the age, say like 14, 15, right? It's a time Mm. where they actually need to think or the family members, not to say force, but will let them know that, oh, you know what? I actually need all of you. I need you to help out the family. So can you go and work? It's a very normal situation. And again, mm. it's, it's really not to blame the family members because they are at such situation. And let's say they choose to go to work um, and that's when the education stops, right? So, mm. so then again, all of these uh, factors and all of these situations eventually lead to a lot of time, not many refugees especially refugees in the transition countries, means country that actually don't sign the convention, but they still host refugees. There are many countries that are, that are like that, actually. One of it is, of course, Malaysia. And teens in this transition country usually find it difficult to like complete a, a course or complete a certification. I'm not saying it is impossible. It is possible, but it's going to take like a really long journey and the family members really have to put in a lot of effort to support. And yeah, with the situation, a lot of them tend to give up or also they would put importance at some other thing rather than education or higher education. Mm. Yeah, I hope that clarifies. Yeah, yeah that clarifies a lot. <laughs> Honestly, a lot of it is quite shocking. And like, I've never really thought about it in such a wide perspective before and you really like opened my eye on so many perspectives that these refugees have to consider but you've mentioned sustainability a lot in your previous responses I felt so and this coincidentally this brings us to our last question of the day which is I believe in your Instagram right you previously mentioned that the other school was created from a need to be sustainable yeah. could we ask you to like elaborate more on what you mean by this and also why is it that you believe these refugee learning centers become sustainable. Right. In order to talk about this, I think it's important to sort of also to explain in a very typical education institution. Let's just mm. forget that whether or not it's a refugee learning center, right? So right. any mm. education institution that you go to, who is paying? 
let me ask you this question. Like, who's the one that pays all the fees so that the school will be able to run? Students, the people, the, the yeah. students. Yeah, right. Yeah, correct. That's a typical um, education institution. So mm. students or parents, in other words, right? So then, mm. however, we know that this is not possible in a refugee learning center. And mm. in this case, the alternative would be the government. Right. Mm-hmm. So hence, you will also have friends that go to a government uni or schools, primary and secondary education. We can have like free education. Mm-hmm. So in this case, these two solutions are not applicable to the refugee students. So now we need to think out of it. Okay, if not the parents, um, not the students, and not the government, who is going to pay? Right. So taking out of the current options of what we call as normally. And then we are left with a business, about a business model where it could be run and at the same time, the profit can be generated towards supporting these students in the refugee learning center. So that is exactly what we are doing. So in other words, we shift the buying power to the public. The public, if we say they buy, there's definitely something that they need to get in return, right? So they are not just giving us the money. They are not donating to us. That's not what we want as well. Mm. And when they pay us, so what happens is they will also receive the class. However, the Mm. classes that they're receiving is not the same as a refugee student. So the classes that they're receiving are essentially what we curate a learning session. So you can imagine like Coursera. So, mm-hmm. however, I know Coursera is for free, but in order to go for the certification, you still need to pay, right? So, in, in this mm-hmm. case, the public actually pay for an amount and then getting their lessons and the amount that they pay us, there's a fixed percentage that will go to us to hire the teachers. Mm-hmm. So, so, in this case, every time when a customer sign up a workshop, not only mm. they are getting something in return because they are buying, not donating. And mm-hmm. at the same time, they also are helping the refugee students to receive their classes and to receive the education by us hiring teachers to teach in the learning center. So mm. yeah, that's, that's the whole idea. And, and basically, it's also how does a typical social enterprise run. So mm-hmm. you have a social cost and at the same time, you also have a business model. Mm. Ah, okay. I think I can see where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This really does shed some, like a lot of light on the importance of sustainability and all that. And also like the hidden underlying business models behind these refugee learning centers. But that concludes all the questions we have for you today. Now, we really do wish we had more time, but sadly, I think we're running a bit short on time. So thank you so much, Ms. Minchia, for all those enlightening responses. I think I can safely vouch for the both of us that, and hopefully all our listeners as well, that we have learned so much regarding the refugee situations from this podcast. All right. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, Ms. Pure, for sharing a lot about what refugee children face when they come over to Malaysia at as Malaysia is a transitional country where we host the refugees, but we don't really actually acknowledge them. And also that we also learn more about like how education to us 
is like a privilege to them, but it's supposed to be a basic right for everybody and for every children to receive it. And that learning center situations have changed and really glad that the other school found a new business model or so-called business model to actually sustain and to not just rely on donation drives and not just to rely on the kindness of people, but actually we can give them back something as they uh, buy something from your learning center. And so I think that's a really great business model and that's a really sustainable one as well. So yeah, and I think that's all for my three for today. I'm going to pass it back to Yunjin. All right. Thank you, Chloe, for that summary. And dear listeners, we are now at the end of our podcast. Thank you once again for tuning in to our episode for today. And if you think the podcast was insightful and needs to be heard more, please do share this episode and follow Walkie Talkie on Spotify for more upcoming episodes. I'm Yun Jing. And I'm Chloe. Signing out from the Walkie Talkie podcast.